Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Bootsy Martinez. She's a forensic linguist, an author, an investigator, and an educator. She's dealt with a lot of organized retail crime. She's worked in criminal justice, many different certifications. So we're going to go into um, her world and see what uh, what it's about. So welcome, Bootsy. Thank you for having me. If you would tell me a bit about your background and how did you get into the areas of work that you're in right now? How did you get into forensic? Well, I have a certificate of forensic linguistic analysis, and I have a master's in criminal justice with an emphasis on forensic linguistics, and I'm completing a PhD in linguistics. I guess the way I got into it was I have a background in criminal justice. I have a bachelor's in criminal justice, but I've always been a writer. And so forensic linguistics is where language meets the law. So language is very interesting to me, and criminal justice is very interesting to me. And so when I put them together, I have found an area that I really enjoy. And Forensic linguistics is pretty broad. It covers a lot of things, but my area is mostly interview and interrogation, false confessions, but I also do plagiarism. And forensic linguistics also talks about trademark, dialectology, voice identification, discourse analysis, language analysis, linguistic profiling, author identification, and I can talk to you more about what those things mean. Yeah, it's a lot in there. I interviewed one guy. He did, I believe, like statement analysis. It wasn't handwriting analysis, but he would look for, um, you know, statements where someone was accused of a crime and they would say like, my wife, my wife, my wife. And then they would change it to like the name of the person or vice versa. And he noticed, oh, some, the person started to distance themselves from that person by the language they use or the pronouns, you know, that kind of thing. You know, one was like an arson case. They talked about my house. And then after it burned, they talked about the house instead. So do you do any of that where you look at forensic statement analysis? I do look at statements. I look at text and a text is a written or a spoken statement. So I look at all kinds of texts. Unfortunately, the statement analysis technique that you're describing has been debunked. There are people who peddle this you know, come to a 40-hour course and learn to be a forensic linguist type of thing. And it doesn't work. It's been debunked. It's not scientific. The people who developed it are not linguists. And when you ask them questions, then they very often don't have answers because they're not linguists. And so uh, part of what I do is looking at interviews and interrogations of false confessions. And so the use of things like this statement analysis technique that's not scientifically based actually helps to lead to false confessions and, you know, unjust convictions. So I look at the realities of language and the rules of linguistics. And and those statement analysis techniques really don't. I love it when people come up to me and say, oh, I took a class on how to count the pronouns and now I know when everybody's guilty. And and it's like, no, you really don't, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, so what's the actual way of doing it? You know, when you're looking at an interrogation and a confession, what, what things do you look for to see if it's valid or invalid? So it depends on what's in the interview or the statement, the written statement, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, if you go to um, 
a doctor because you have the flu and he gives you, you know, antibiotics or something and you take that, that's, that's correct. But if you went to a surgeon, the surgeon, you know, might say, well, you didn't cut anything out, so you didn't do it right. So what you're looking at linguistically depends on what's there. So you have to be very knowledgeable about all the different areas that go into linguistic in order to determine what is there and then evaluate what's there. So unfortunately, there's no, you know, what size fits all. I mean, I, I know that there's a, a practitioner of forensic linguistics who's developed, you know, like a computer program and, uh, you know, sort of says this is the be all and the end all. And again, it could be depending on what you have in the statement. But if you don't have anything in the statement that's going to lend itself to that kind of analysis, then it won't do you any good. So Forensic linguistics looks mostly at things having to do with sociolinguistics and applied linguistics. So those kinds of things are phonetics and phonology, in other words, speech sounds, syntax, which is how people put sentences together, uh, the fields of semantics and pragmatics, which are the ways that meaning is created, interpreted, and performed, and then speech variety, which means dialects. So all of that can go into evaluating, you know, first of all, author identification, wrote something or who was the author of a text or who spoke the words. And then what actually are the words? And this comes up more in analysis of things, you know, audio analysis, things like 911 calls and other recorded statements, which have their own issues, you know, having to do with degradation, the tapes and, you know, things like that. But when we're talking about written statements, first of all, if they're not signed, you know, can we figure out who wrote them? And yes, there's you know, very good way by looking at all the things that I mentioned about the, you know, syntax and pragmatics and so forth to see whether it's consistent with something else that that person has written or that, you know, several, if you have several suspects, who is who is it consistent with or maybe it's not consistent with anybody. So I think it's more of, I, I could draw an example not to fingerprint. You wouldn't mind an example would help. Yeah. So not to fingerprint analysis, which is, you know, although AI is, is coming through and saying that fingerprints aren't really unique the way we thought they were, and that may be so, but we have very good track record with fingerprints. And, you know, basically this set of fingerprints is going to come back to only one person. So forensic linguistics is not like that. It's more like hair analysis, right? So we could have two hairs and say that this hair is consistent with this other one. It doesn't mean that it's 100% from the same person. But it could be consistent with and we could show differences from other, you know, texts or other hairs in that example. So I'll give you an example in written linguistics. So there was a ransom note in a kidnapping and the writer of the ransom note obviously was was anonymous, right? But a linguist, a forensic linguist analyzed the ransom note and it directed the person to drop off, you know, an amount of cash at a public trash can that was located on the Devil's Strip at this, you know, crossroads. And the forensic linguist looked at it and said, on your list of suspects, do you have an educated person who hails from the Akron, Ohio area? And they said, yes, we do. And he said, well, that's probably your guy. And, and that was correct. And the reason he could tell was that Devil's Strip it refers to that band of green, you know, grass between the sidewalk and the street, but they only call it a devil's strip in Akron. They don't call it that anyplace else. Other places, you know, it's a green belt or, you know, something else. So that way we could, you know, we could see the consistency between how somebody used a phrase unique to where they were from and the person who wrote it, right? And so that, you know, did turn out to be the suspect. 
Does that be called like vernacular analysis or is it called something else? It's called forensic linguistic analysis. And what it's analyzing is a dialect or a speech variety. And so we have, you know, a lot of times uh, it can it can happen in written statements, but it can also happen in audio. So uh, pretty recently, within the last couple of years, there was a study that came out of the Philadelphia courts and the court reporters who are supposed to be taking down every witness's testimony word for word were having great difficulty in taking down the speech of people who spoke African-American variety of English. So when court reporters go to school, they get trained usually on you know, what we would call standard American English, which is the way that the people on CNN speak. But you know, we have many different dialects or speech varieties in the United States, and not everyone speaks like the newscasters on CNN. So when people were testifying, they weren't really accurately capturing what they were saying because they didn't fully understand it. It makes sense. Yeah. So, well, it's very problematic, though, because when somebody's testifying and you're not accurately recording what they're saying, that's a problem. Yeah, no, I understand. So, what are what are some of the other critical types of analysis you do as a forensic linguist? Like, do you so if there's let's say an interrogation and a confession, will you review the written uh, the transcript and listen to it at the same time to get both clues? Do you do it separately? Do you watch video and pick up other clues that match? What someone's saying, like how many levels of analysis are there? Well, that's a very good question. And you know, traditional forensic linguistics has looked at the text, which could be the recording and the written transcript, right? So the transcripts are a little bit problematic. They're usually pretty good. However, transcripts can be problematic in that people will hear different things. So something that I hear perfectly clearly, you might not or you might think that it's something else. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so when you have a written transcript in front of you, and this is especially true during a jury trial, Transcripts are not evidence, but very often either the prosecution or the defense will hand out a transcript of whatever the jury is seeing or hearing, and they become primed to hear what is on the written transcript because they're also looking at it. So that can be quite problematic because we also have an area called non-speech sounds, right? And so that would be like breathing heavily after exertion or, you know, laughter or things like that. So it's a sound that's made, you know, by a human being, but it's not a speech sound. They're not saying words. And there was a case in Australia where a boy about 13 years old went out to do his paper route and he came home and both of his parents were brutally murdered and he found them, you know, lying in blood and so forth. So he called 999, just the emergency number in Australia. And he was so out of breath that they interpreted when he was breathing heavily, that he actually said, I killed them. But other linguists were able to show that right. it 
that he wasn't saying anything. It was just a non-speech sound. So there's a lot of room for misinterpretation. So when I look at the interview or the interrogation, I am looking at the transcript. I'm listening to what's being said and then also watching. So in the United States, we're kind of kind of behind the other English-speaking countries. I think we're beginning to catch up, but uh, you know, it takes a long time to turn a big ship around. And so I think it'll be quite a few years before we finally catch up to them. So in the UK and Australia, for example, they've gotten away from what we call interrogations, which takes place at the point at which someone becomes a suspect in a criminal case. So it turns from an interview, which would be given to you know, a victim or a witness, to an interrogation of suspect. And a lot of police officers in the United States will use something called the Reed Technique. And Reed uh, was developed about 100 years ago, and it, it represented great progress in the 1930s. It was designed to go along with the polygraph, which was a new invention at that time. And the progress at that point was that previously, you know, prior to the, to the polygraph, a lot of the ways that police officers would get confessions were, you know, to punch the suspect in the face. So now we're just talking. That's a terrific improvement, right? But now it's 100 years later. And the techniques that go along with Reed include putting the suspect in a small room, putting them in a corner, having an obstacle like a desk in front of them so that the subliminal message to them is the only way out is through me, the interrogator. So you tell me what I want to hear so I can let you out of this room. And then the interrogator will create a story of what they think happened and will get the person, you know, keep keep pounding and pounding, not physically, but with words on the person until they hear what they want to hear. And so we get a lot of false confessions that way. We learn our soft interrogation techniques. Have you heard about those? Are those right. used? So, so the UK has uh, what we call the PEACE method, which is an acronym. And the FBI has essentially the same method that they call HIG, which is high intensity group. And so they started using that. And, and that basically means treating the person civilly, not yelling at them, not demanding that they give you a certain answer, but allowing them to tell you what they have to say. And so it just makes sense that when someone's allowed to speak and tell you what they have to say, you're going to find out more than if you tell them what you want to hear. And, you know, the FBI, you know, uses that in certain instances and it's starting to catch on in police departments. But again, it's slow. Okay, I mean, is it being used, or in what context is it being used, it, and it what are what some used. of the data are on it? Like, what does it produce versus current techniques? Oh well, we know that we get a lot of false confessions using the read technique, and we know that we don't get as many false confessions. We get very few with peace or hig. And so, in the UK, the police have been using this for years. So it works out very well. You very rarely have somebody confessing the same way that you have in America. Part of the problem in the United States. I mean, first of all, we're really big. You know, we have a lot of police departments compared to, you know, the UK or even Australia. But there have been tons of studies that have been done that show that police officers have a very high level of confidence that they can tell when somebody's lying. However, the studies also show that police officers actually don't have the ability that's any better than chance to determine whether somebody's lying. But because they believe that they can tell that someone's lying, they latch on to the idea that someone is guilty and they keep pounding and pounding until this person gives it up. And that reinforces their idea that, hey, see, I really knew that this guy was guilty. And now he told me. And it doesn't allow for the fact that they might be wrong. So 
what's happening right now is very interesting because, you know, police careers go in 20 year cycles. And, and so what we did 20 years ago was different from what we're doing today and different from what we'll be doing in two decades. But a lot of people who've recently retired, I think they feel very threatened that, you know, maybe they didn't do it right. And maybe they did get some false confessions. But that's, you know, I, in, to my view, that's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is it's progress, right? So we made progress with Reed and now we're making progress with Peace and Hick. And as we move forward, we just need to start building in better practices. Okay, so like like what? Like soft interrogation versus the current methods or, you know, what else? And again, how much of a difference does it make? A huge difference, a small one? You know, are there particular types of cases that it's more amenable to? or personality types of the defendant, you know, or the suspect, I'm sorry. It can you it can be effective in any types of case and it can be effective in murder cases. It can be effective in, you know, check kiting cases and shoplifting. So Peace and Hager, the big ones. There's also Wicklander Zelaski, which is kind of the gold standard in the security industry. And it works as well. It's also um, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about when you say soft, but it, it doesn't involve, you know, yelling at the person and demanding that they confess to something that they didn't do. But those are, you know, those are uh, accepted and good ways to conduct interviews rather than, you know, interrogations. And they are very reliable, right? So when you see that someone has been exonerated, you know, you follow the Innocence Project cases, I will almost guarantee you that the interrogation technique used was Reed. And so there are, you know, a lot of differences. What, are, what does Reed stand for? What does the acronym mean? It, it's it's not an acronym. It was someone's name. It's John John Reed R E I D. Yeah, so it was his technique that was developed to go along with the polygraph. And so the person who's being interviewed or interrogated, you do have to think about what their capabilities are and what they might or might not understand. And so this is where uh, you know dialectology could come in. So if you have someone who has some sort of a disability, so that may be an intellectual disability where the person really can't reason far in it you know, in advance. And so they might not invoke their right to remain silent because they can't really figure out that if I if I tell you something now, it can be used against me later. It can be someone with hearing impairments. Hearing impairments are probably account for a large percentage of problematic confessions because the person doesn't really understand what they're saying. I, I have a cousin who's hearing impaired and instead of you know, doing something about it, which which he totally could. He just nods and smiles and he has no idea what's going on. So, you know, if you're nodding and smiling and saying yes in interrogation, you may be confessing to something and have no idea what's going on. You, you have that and you also have people whose native language is not English, for example. You know, and so, you know, can they speak enough English to, you know, go shopping at the grocery store? Sure. But are they really you know, able to handle themselves in an interview or an interrogation. I mean, and again, people don't want to admit that they don't know what's going on. So a lot of times they'll just like go along with it. There's a case where uh, federal agents were talking with a man from Greece and they were talking about his income taxes and they were trying to see if he would bite. I mean, it, it was really entrapment. You know, they, they wanted to see if he would bite on what they called an opportunity to fix. And that was the word they used, fix his taxes. And he kept going, yeah, great. He thought it was great because he thought, oh, yeah, somebody's going to do my taxes for me. They meant, you know, illegally fixing his taxes, but he had no idea what that meant. Uh, Yeah. So you have that kind of thing. And these things are used, you know, beyond what we think of as typical crimes. I mean, we have a big focus on immigration now. 
right? And so a lot of times people are coming here because they're refugees, they're fleeing, you know, violence, persecution in their home countries. But sometimes when people are in refugee camps, for example, they may be among people who speak lots of different languages, but sort of a common, you know, pigeon comes out of the refugee camp vocabulary. And so they may use a word for something in the refugee camp that they picked up from another language because everyone else in the camp is using that. And so when uh, linguists listen to them and, you know, question them about their background and so forth, they may hear this word from another language, go, oh, that guy's not really from where he says he is, but that may not be the case. So it's sort of like, I want you to tell me whether you can determine whether a person is from East Texas or Oklahoma, right? So a lot of times, yeah, you know, they sound My distinction, yeah. Yeah. So if that border between Texas and Oklahoma were, you know, a country border, that could have you know, very grave implications if you make the wrong determination. And so that's what we have, you know, in terms of uh, dialectology, even though we have different dialects in, in just American English. I mean, you, you have, you know, can, can someone from Maine communicate with someone from Texas? You know, sure. But the Mainer is going to say, yeah, when they, when they mean, yeah, you know, in the Texas. Yeah say that the Texan is going to say spot, you know, or the Northeaster is going to say, you know, potato. Yeah, like I'm from New York and uh, we've been in Texas for a while and my kids said I'm a, you know, we have this debate whether my hair is black or brown. They say black and they call me a black haired yaller. And they say, I don't say y'all, get out of here. You know, they tease me. So same thing. They say it now, but I don't, they picked it up by being here, you know. Yes. And that's very interesting because there's a, a very famous case in the, in the world of forensic linguistics, and it involves a man from Long Island in a, a town right outside of New York. So he really had that New York City accent. And he moved to Los Angeles and he worked for an airline that's no longer in business. And he was, you know, he was kind of a pill, right? He, he complained a lot and, you know, he was a pain in the neck, but, but he did his work. Well, the airline started receiving, and this was, you know, in the 70s. So this is way before, you know, computers and things. So they started receiving recordings, you know, voice voicemail messages, essentially, of threats to blow up planes. And the person had an East Coast accent. Well, you know, and Angelino, what do they know about, you know, Boston, Rhode Island, New York? You know, they, they don't know, right? So the police brought the recordings, you know, around to different personnel at the airline and said, does this sound like anybody you know? And a lot of people said, yeah, it sounds like this guy who was, you know, the less than stellar employee. But his supervisor said, no, that's not him. Well, he was arrested. He went to jail. They let him out. There was another bomb threat. They locked him up again. And at his trial, he had a very famous forensic linguist from Pennsylvania. And he used a chart to represent uh, the vowel sounds, right? So, so that he made it you know, concrete so people could see what was going on. And the fact was that the person who was leaving the messages was from Boston. He had a Boston accent. He, he did not have a New York accent. But again, to a person from the West Coast, what did, what did they know? You know, I mean, in, in New York, you might go to a barber shop, but in Massachusetts, you'd go to barber shop. <laughs> so either way, it's not the way exactly right. in California, right? And, you know, it reminds me of that scene in Singing in the Rain the movie where uh, the the voice coach is trying to teach the silent film actress to speak properly, you know, and she she models the speech and she says, I can't stand him. And the actress goes back to her old way of speaking. She says, I can't stand him. Yeah. You know, so those are the, some of the things that are taken into account where we, you know, when we're doing dialectology, for example. I mean, I'm from New York and even there you have very different accents of people. And I know people that this one pundit, you know, political pundit I listen to, he sounds like my mother. 
you know, they have like the same intonation of their voice. But I mean, even in New York, just in New York, it's totally different. There's a lot of different accents, you know? So how do you even pinpoint where someone's from? Well, you know, you do it by collecting a lot of examples of speech from different places. I mean, so talking about New York, my mother was from Brooklyn and she always had a very thick Brooklyn accent, kind of the toity toy to toy, you know, for 33rd and 3rd accent. Uh, and she never, she never lost it. I think I, I have it once in a while. I don't, I don't always speak like that. Uh, my uncle spoke differently, but there's something called the Great Vowel Shift. <laughs> and uh, in the Great Lakes region, so upstate New York, and you know the Great Lakes regions, you have people changing the way that they pronounce vowels. So what are the places where it becomes very clear is oh, we've sort of blended a, a lot of you know, people who speak what we would consider standard American English have blended their vowel sounds so that the words Mary, Mary, and Mary all sound the same. So I have three different vowel sounds for each of those words, but a lot of people don't. They all say Mary, you know, and in, in the Great Lakes region, instead of saying an ah sound like around the block, they say ah, so it's black. Right. So these are some of the things that you're looking for in, you know, speech dialectology, but that also comes up in yeah. written form, you know. I so heard that like uh horrible well, I'll say horrible instead of horrible. Right. What people say uh, orange instead of orange. Right. You know, or apricot, apricot, stuff like that. Right. Tomato, tomato, sure. Ooh. So what what do you do then when these differences can be blended, subtle, highly regional? Like what do you do? Well, you just notice them. I mean, North Carolina, for example, there was just a linguistic study that was published in the last couple of months that said that, you know, the parents and the grandparents of people who were born in North Carolina, they spoke a lot more of what we consider a Southern accent. And that um, because there's been so much migration in that area, the accent has been diluted. And a lot of people from the Carolinas speak you know, closer to what we would consider standard American English than, you know, than the y'all and honey and, you know, I, for I, you know, I was there. Yeah. So they're not, they're not speaking that way anymore. And, and that happens when there's migration and there's always migration. People are always moving around. And so they influence each other's speech and, and all you can do is notice it. And, you know, for example, if I heard someone speaking with a very thick New York accent, I would probably say that that person was older. You know, because the younger ones, while they do have an accent that's different, it's evolved and it's a little less thick than it used to be. You know, and of course we can look at, you know, the origins, right? I mean, there's an element of speech and especially in, in English, it's very interesting, that's referred to as roticity or, or rhotic speech, which is adding an R where there isn't an R as in idea, right? Or removing an R yep. where there is an R like father. Right. And so when you have that, we, we have to look back, you know, in the Northeast, or especially in, in New York. Before New York was New York, it was New Amsterdam. Right. And so you have that Germanic language, which doesn't have the R that's the same as in English. English has a unique R. It's not found in other languages. Right. So uh, one of the ways that you might be able to tell that someone is not, you know, from here or didn't grow up here is the way they pronounce the R's or don't pronounce them. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, I've heard about like Warrakoke Island, which is like off the east coast of the U.S. There, they speak really weird. Have you ever had a case where like the person's dialect was so unusual and regional and odd that you, you just knew exactly where they were from? You can tell sometimes. So Tangier Island, it's in the in Chesapeake Bay 
it's sort of between Maryland and Virginia and St. James, which is also in the same area, they're isolated, they're island, right? And so a lot of people say mistakenly that they speak Elizabethan English. Well, the people who settled there, they were from Cornwall. And so they did have a certain way of speaking. And because they were isolated for so many years, they have a very interesting way of speaking. Um, and so I've been to Tangier Island a couple of times and I just listened to people. I listened to the older people and the way they speak. And I sat near two older gentlemen who were having uh, a conversation on Tangier Island. And the only thing I could understand was when they said $20 at Walmart. I, I didn't understand anything else they said, you know, but you can detect elements of English or, you know, Elizabethan era speech. For example, in a word that has a round O like boat, right? They put an A in front of it. So they would pronounce it bay, right? And so you hear that kind of thing in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia areas. You know, you hear a lot of A in front of the O. So that's sort of a holdover from, you know, the settlers. You know, I was in a in an ice cream shop in Virginia Beach and a man came in and he asked for an ice cream cane. <laughs> there was a lot of that A in front of the O. So so yeah, I mean if you listen to YouTube videos about Tangier Island speech, you know, Tangier, but it's very difficult to understand. But I know in like Ohio, they had uh, the A's were strange. So like your hit, you know, or he's back instead of back. It sounds really weird. Yeah. It, well, you know, that's the interesting thing, right? You say it sounds really weird. And, and to anybody, right, somebody from someplace else always sounds weird. You know, they don't, they talk funny over there, wherever there is and wherever here is, you know. So, you know, we hear what we're used to hearing. And when we hear something that's different, we do notice it. Okay. Interesting. Tell me what other sub areas of linguistic forensics that you use commonly that maybe are really rarely known by anyone outside the field. Well, I'm a college faculty, so I deal with plagiarism all the time. I mean, I think anybody who's been teaching for, you know, more than a year is, uh, you know, somewhat of an expert on plagiarism. You know, I sound like I'm joking, not really. You know, you can tell when someone's writing DD. So I'm a consultant in forensic linguistics, and I was hired by an attorney who was representing someone who had written a manuscript. And she made a very rookie mistake, which was she didn't get the money up front. The person whose manuscript she was writing said, oh, once we sell the book, you know, you'll, you'll get part of the royalties. Well, that never worked. So you always, always charge up front. But she didn't know that. So she, you know, she interviewed this woman who had a very unique story and, and she, um, you know, wrote the manuscript. And then for whatever reason, the subject of the book said, all right, you know, I don't think we can work together anymore. And she took the manuscript and she gave it to another writer who sort of, you know, finished the book and then published it. Well, when the, the original writer of the manuscript saw it, she said, that's my work. And so they called me in and the publisher's argument was basically they had interviewed this person and it represented the way that the person spoke. But I was able to show using forensic linguistic techniques and also corpus linguistic techniques, I'll explain in a moment, that wasn't the case. And that it, it really was plagiarism. I mean, the second author had used most of the manuscript, you know, so that's kind of dirty pool that's not allowed. So there was a, you know, they took it to court and so forth. But corpus linguistic has to do with corpora, just the plural of corpus, right? More than one corpus or corpora. And so there are a variety of corpora and they're available pretty freely. So we have corpora, older, you know, English, you know, UK written novels. We have corpora uh, that incorporate uh, speech, television, uh, newspapers, magazines from contemporary times. So different corporate, there are collections tech, right? So whether that's written or, you know, transcribed, spoken. And 
by consulting the corporate, you can see whether words are used together, you know. So, that, I mean, if you put into a corpus, for example, black cat, you'll probably get, you know, a zillion hits, right? Because that's a very common term. But I was able to show that the way that the original author had written a manuscript, there were several terms that were unique. And so I think, you know, overall, you you might not look at it and say, wow, this is an example of great writing. I don't think it was very good, but that helped her case because what she said couldn't be found anyplace else. So it was just her idea, you know, her way of writing, which is what we call the idiolect, right? So the idiolect is the way an individual speaks. And so that's, you know, part of what we're looking at. Can we determine what someone's idiolect is? And we look at that in plagiarism. So when you know, for example, a student, you know, handwrites something in class and then what they turn in, you know, on a typed paper is very, very different. We can say, well, you know, maybe you didn't actually write this. Yeah. So let's have a conversation about that because it's not consistent with your way of writing or your way of speaking, your idiolect. But don't people write differently than they speak or no? We do write differently, but if you have you know, again, I may pass out a handout in class and say, okay, write your answer. So then I have a baseline for how this person writes. So when they turn in a paper to me that's typed, I can see, does it deviate quite a bit or are they consistent in the way that they're writing? And so that's what you're looking for in plagiarism. I mean, there have been, you know, the Da Vinci Code was heavily plagiarized from the right? You can see the way that that works and you know, corporate can, can help with that. And, you know, it's a little different when we talk about different genres. So for example, news stories, news articles, they tend to be written in the same way. And there's not really a way to determine gender. You can't tell whether your reporter was male or female. Uh, you probably can't tell what part of the United States they're from if they're American because it's, you know, it's kind of standardized in that genre. Now, if someone were writing poetry, it might be very different. You know, you could tell easily whether this person's poetry was consistent with what they wrote or not. So idiolect, again, is the way that an individual speaks. I'll just give you an example of uh, idiolect that, that happened in my life. So when my son was about 16, we were out uh, with some friends on New Year's Eve. And my friend was driving and he said, let's go get pizza. And apparently I said, that idea has some potential. And my son's in the backseat and he heaves this huge sigh, you know, the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he says, you know, when my mom says that, it means it's a really great idea and you'll never get to do it. I was unaware that that was my code word, you know, because, but he had spent 16 years observing me. So he knew, you know, so a lot of times people will give themselves away because they're not aware of write the way we write, speak the way we speak. So that gives an opening for linguists to come in and examine what's there and see whether that differs from, you know, other things that the person has written or spoken or differs from the way somebody else has written or spoken. My daughter used to ask me and my wife for something and I would say, maybe, and she would say, it's a definite, yeah. I said, no, it's not. You use definite, yeah. She knew, yeah, it's funny. They do, they do. Kids know, right? But, you know, one of the things that happens, I took an interest in a case, there was a police officer had moved outside the city limit. He got a farm in his wife's large lot. And when the chief of police was leaving, he decided that he wanted to throw his hat in the ring to become a chief. And he wasn't eligible because he lived outside the city limits. So apparently his wife was in the city and leaving, you know, the acreage that they had. So uh, the prosecutors said that he hired a couple of people to kill his wife. 
And one of the things that the case turned on was came home, he found, you know, there was a lot of blood. It was a very messy crime scene. He found his wife dead. And, you know, even even if you, you know, planned it and paid somebody to do it, it would still be, you know, something that was very uh, difficult to handle. And his phone was a uh, cordless. So this was before cell phones. It was a cordless phone. So right away, you have some degradation because it's not a landline. It's cordless phone. And he called 911. And so that tape, you know, that call was taped. And so you have more degradation of the speech, right? And so what the prosecution alleged that he said was, I have to call Phelps. And Phelps was the name of one of the guys they thought was involved. He alleges that he said, I have to call the help, right? Well, you know, the case, you know, as they do, they, it took a long time to be investigated and come to court and so forth. So by the time that piece of you know, what he thought was evidence proving him not guilty came up. The original 911 tape had been, I think it was a large reel and it had been re-recorded. They had re-recorded all those large reels onto cassette tapes. So now you have something that's three generations degraded. And he went to a forensic linguist at university and he said, you know, help help me prove what I said. So there were there were two forensic linguists involved and one of them said, he said Phelps and the other one said, he said for help. I listened to it and it's difficult because of the degradation, especially around the S sounds, right? So there are some of the first to go when you have, you know, recordings and re-recording. So um, he was convicted. He was convicted, but later on, you know, he said he was factually innocent and they took a look at the case. And I think they what they did was they let him out of prison because his term was, you know, almost up. There was never you know, a clear resolution in that case. But those are some of the things that sometimes guilt and innocence can turn on. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so subtle and yeah, crazy. What other areas of, of analysis really are like you said debunked or not useful? Like what about a handwriting analysis? I mean, people don't really write much anymore, but you know, what, what's happened to that, for instance? So handwriting analysis is graphology. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with forensic linguistics. And I think it's very interesting. I was at a presentation once and there were two handwriting analysts there, and they almost came blows over the ransom note in the uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping. You know, and one of them insisted that it was written by Bernal, and the other one said, no, I could prove it wasn't. And, you know, so there's still, you know, disagreement about that. I think that that's a field they don't do anything with, really. But I think that, you know, there are certain things that you can see in handwriting, you know, that different ways that people make, you know, upward and downward strokes and, and things like that, that you can look at. But I imagine that that's not 100% either, you know, and then you have complications again, when you get people maybe from different places, right? So I remember a long time ago, I had a car and I sold it to a private party. And the man I sold it to was not from the United States. So I think English was not his native language. And so he learned to write in English, but what he learned was how to print. He didn't learn cursive. And so when he signed the title and we went to the DMV, they didn't want to take it because it wasn't a signature. And it's like, yeah, but that is his signature. Right. Yeah, so you have those kinds of things coming in. When we talk about things like semantics and pragmatics, you know, which is meaning, how it's how it's created, how it's interpreted, right? You know, a few years ago, there was, you know, uh, a lot of hullabaloo about, you know, what did the president say and what did he really mean about it? And, and it goes back to, you know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? You know, so are you really saying, are you really asking a question like who might, you know, do the deed or are you veiling your request or really order, you know, to do it, to get rid of, you know, the person, the, the troublesome priest, if you will, you know, and so if you just look at what the words say, it's a question. But when you, 
look at it through the lens of semantics, pragmatics, it's not just a question, right? Because there's underlying meaning. And one of the places where critical discourse analysis, semantics, pragmatics, that kind of thing is coming into play and, and there's a really big spotlight shining on it today is in uh, dating terminology, right? So we have all these apps and, you know, people put their profile up. And so uh, what's the meaning behind what they're really saying? Why are they using these word choices? If there are, you know, example emojis, what, what do they really mean? What are they trying to convey? And then you bring in things like, you know, photographs, right? People posting photographs of themselves. And, and so what does it mean when someone in a dating app profile photo is like lying down or sitting up or, you know, sitting up and leaning forward like they were watching, you know, a football game on TV? Like, so all of those things have meaning, right? And they don't just mean what's on the surface. So, you know, when you're looking into that, it can be pretty interesting. There's something called Grice's maxims. So Grice was a linguist, right? And he came up with these maxims, right? Which even if you've never heard of it, you know what it means. It's the way that we all sort of, what they call cooperate when we speak, right? So one of them, one of the maxims has to do with how much information give somebody, right? And so if I ask you, did you take the bus to work today? You would probably say, oh no, I drove my, right? I didn't ask you if you drove your car, but you're being polite and you're offering me the information. But what you're not saying is, oh yes, I got up, I had a bowl of cereal, I brushed my teeth, I got you. Then I went down and I stood at the bus stop and the bus came along at 9.20. You know, you're not going into all of that because it's not what's expected in conversation. Those are not the conversation rules that we play by. Right. And so, you know, I have another example of that. You know, my son was, I don't know, five or six, and he had just uncovered the mysteries of carbonation. He leads me to the refrigerator and he picks up a bottle of soda and he says, I absolutely did not shake this up before I gave it to you. <laughs> you know, and so when people offer too much information. What if he had a Bible and he goes, Mom, I hereby certify under penalty of perjury that I did not. Well, you know, my son would actually be the kind of person who would say that. You know, he's very, very intelligent. And every time I have a conversation, I was going to ask you, um, I don't know if they call it a verbal tick, but like, for instance, there's one restaurant we go to, one of the waiters, when you order something, he goes, nice, nice. You know, he always does that. And I knew this one lady, she would always say certain, certain. And I'm like, what? And she goes, oh, I'm saying sit, sitting here or setting here. I don't know. Sometimes people have these very strange, again, I don't know if they're verbal ticks or what they are. Is that ever used You know, when that's when that's known about a subject or a suspect? Yeah, that's part of the idiolect, that is the way they speak. But is there a term for that, or is it just part of the idiolect? You know, th those kinds of expressions are like placeholders or markers that, you know, are not commonly used, which is why you notice it, right? So if your waiter, for example, you know, made a 911 call and you heard him say, I'll recall, nice, nice, you know, you would probably say, oh, I know that guy. You know, he's the waiter, because most people don't say that. So that's, you know, part of his idiolect. So that's, you know, one of the ways, you know, we determine whether, you know, a, a spoken text is consistent with, you know, somebody or not consistent with somebody. You know, and you would probably be very surprised if you heard a spoken text of this guy and he didn't say nice, because that's part of what he says, right? So we're almost looking, you know, for that kind of thing. Any new techniques that maybe aren't certified yet or admissible in court, but, you know, you're experimenting with or other forensic linguists are experimenting with? So, yeah, there are two answers to that. I mean, the first one is there's this terrible, terrible claim 
that you can tell whether a person is guilty when they call in on the 911 call by listening to, you know, whether they talk about themselves or they talk about the other person or what their concern is and so forth. And so this was dreamed up by a police chief of a very small town who probably never investigated more than four murders in his whole career. And he partnered up with a linguist. I mean, the woman has a PhD, but, you know, she's behind some of the, you know, the garbage that's out there, the pronouns. And they determined, they wrote a book and they're doing trainings to tell everybody that you can determine guilt just from the 911 call, which, you know, seems to me like a pretty great trick, but it's so bad and it's so unscientific that, you know, normally if you want to bring something into court, you have to have it tested under either Fry or Delbert, depending on which state you're in, which just means that the judge will evaluate whether this is something that's recognized by the scientific community. Has it been published in peer-reviewed journals? Have other you know people in that area you know, sort of signed off on it and says, yeah, this is good science, right? Well, that never happened because it's not, right? But what they're doing is they're sneaking it in the back door and they're tra- they're training people. And, and, you know, this always gets me very upset because police officers have to do a certain amount of training. They get a certain amount of money to do it. And people come along and like, oh, I'll teach you how to count the pronouns or how to determine whether somebody's guilty from a 911 call. And they spend training money on it. And then they think they really know something and they go to apply it and, you know, and it's bad, right? And so it can get people convicted and sent to prison because the person teaching it doesn't know what they're doing. So they're they're going around teaching people and collecting a lot of money for it. And because it would never pass prior down there, they are bringing it in the back door by saying, I was trained on this. And so unless the you know defense attorney is wise to it, they're not going to ask what kind of training or who trained it and you know, whether it was you know good science or not. So you have that kind of thing going on. And I'm sure there will always be someone, you know, opportunistic who will come up with something. Now, this is really more of an American thing. Why did you sell a training and how to defeat these attorneys, you know? Well, I do, I do do forensic linguistic training for police officers. And I'd be very happy to bring that to anybody who would want that training. And I would teach them the right scientific way to do that. Lawyers would be, uh, defense lawyers would be a, another market for it because they got to defend the clients. And if they run into this garbage, you know, how do they, they bite it in court so their client doesn't get an unfair outcome? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, attorneys and, and even prosecutors, right? Because, you know, if someone's guilty, you want to have the facts on your side as well. I mean, when I consult for attorneys, it doesn't matter to me whether they're prosecutors or defense attorneys. I look at what's there and then I give you the answer. And if you don't like it, then don't use it. You know, but I'm not going to tell you something that you want to hear because you're, you know, you're paying me. So for example, I consulted on a case of a man who was accused federally, and that's important. I'll tell you why in a minute. He was accused federally of using the internet to lure a minor for sexual acts. What he was doing was he was actually talking to an undercover agent. And so his attorney approached me and said, can you look at this? Can you give me anything that I can go to court with? And I looked at it and, you know, unfortunately for that attorney, and they were very short, you know, texts, chats, right? So very short lines, but it was absolutely textbook. I mean, absolutely textbook. So in these in these chats of using the internet to lure a minor, there, there tend to be six stages, right? And this guy hit every stage. He even hit the one where they get spooked and they say, oh, I don't think you're really, you know, a 14-year-old girl or whatever. You know, I, I think you're a police officer. And But they're in the grip, you know, compulsion that's so strong that even when 
you know, their spidey senses are telling them, you know, they're not really talking to a kid. They're talking to a, a federal agent or a police officer. They keep going because there might be that, you know, 0.01% chance that they're really talking to, you know, a child, right? So, you know, I said to the attorney, I gave him my report. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have anything you can use. And he's like, right, off to the psychiatrist. I'm like, yeah, I think that's your best bet. So, you know, you asked about, you know, where it's going. And I think AI is definitely the next place. I mean, AI has been in use in forensic linguistics for a few years. And there's a big competition, you know, where people try to analyze texts, you know, faster than anybody else with their computer programs. And I mean, I don't think it's, you know, the be all and the end all yet, but we're definitely getting there. You know, it shed light on things that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily pick up if we were doing it by hand. Can someone be coached to, um, you know, to hide how they really talk? Like, let's say, uh, I know you wouldn't, but if I hired you, I say, hey, you know, I'm going to be a defendant in this case. Can you coach me so that I'll throw off the forensic linguistics so that it creates doubt? You know, can I say words in a different way or with a different cadence so that it'll, it'll confuse people? Well, I don't think that would be successful because, again, you've got your own idiolect and you may not be aware of everything that you say, just like I wasn't aware of my code word for no, that, you know, that my son picked up on. So in the case that I mentioned to you where there was a kidnapping and a ransom note asking for the money to be dropped off at the Devil's Strip, that author of that note attempted to disguise himself, right? So what he did was he changed words that started with a C to K's. So like trash can, K-A-N, right? And so he did that throughout the note and he jumbled up the spelling in a couple of places to try to throw people off, right? But the linguist looked at it and it was like, no, because when people genuinely don't know how to spell, they're going to make consistent types of errors. And this guy wasn't, he was just, you know, trying to throw people off the scent and it just didn't work, you know? So I think that, you know, if you tried to do that in speech, it would be even harder because, you you know, you have to think on your feet. And in fact, there's what we call a type text ratio, right? Which, which has to do with how many times do you use certain words within a hundred words or 500 words or whatever it is, right? And similar to that, is whether is pauses, right? So we look at pauses in spoken speech to determine whether somebody is speaking naturally or not. So if you're, I understand you're married, but if you were single and you were maybe out on a date and, you know, the, the woman you were dating was a doctor or, you know, you really wanted to impress her with how intelligent you were, you might speak more slowly because you're reaching for, you know, bigger words, right? And so that's going to take a few, you know, fractions of a second longer than to come up with a usual word that you would use. Right, I understand. Yeah, you know, you're looking for things like that. And is that consistent with the way that you always spoke? That's what we'll Okay. Uh, this has been a really cool call. What's the best place for people to start finding about forensic linguistics? So as I was going to say before, we're, we're not that great at it yet in America, but in the United Kingdom, uh, they do a lot. There's something called the Center for Forensic Linguistics, and they do take on cases and they consult and they teach and uh, this whole you know college um, program around it. And so that's a really good place. And every, I believe now it's every two years, there's a summer institute and it, it goes around. I think it was important. Portugal and back to the UK. And, and so if you want to get away for a couple of weeks in the summer and learn something about forensic linguistics, that's a great way to do it. All right, cool. Well, Bootsy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really interesting call. I liked it a lot. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.